Hey everyone, Quinn here. We recorded this episode a while back and we were going to release it, but that was right before the murder of George Floyd and the resulting national uprising about police brutality and systemic racism. And even though we talked about COVID, which is still relevant and relevant in the context of how many black and brown people have been disproportionately affected by COVID, we felt it was best to hold off on posting it for a little bit in order to focus our attention where it needed it most. So before we get started, we just want to echo what so many others are saying in the streets and in households across America. Black lives matter. Racism is a public health crisis, and in order for the healing to begin, we need to name the problem and acknowledge it um, that it is a problem. So uh, the following is a conversation we had with Dr. Janice Zagibber, a pharmacist, epidemiologist, and professor at the University of South Florida, and Dr. Erica Fant, a clinical pharmacist here in St. Petersburg. We talked a bit about the role of the epidemiologist and the role of the pharmacist in this pandemic, and touched on some topics that may have been in the news this year regarding certain medications and whether they are miracle drugs or not. Uh, oh, and contact tracing. So enjoy our podcast about epidemiology and pharmacy starting now. I gotta get all these correct letters in. I'm gonna make him do my titles. Hell yeah. <sighs> Hell what yeah. Would your, what would your actual title title be? Clinical pharmacist. Clinical pharmacist. Excellent. At large. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Head senior lead clinical pharmacist. <laughs> no. Legal drug dealer. Yes. <laughs> Accurate. Did dispense some ketamine today. Cool. Oh, shit. Get some of that special K. Mm, refilled the cocaine in ER a couple days ago. Wow. Those good times. Wow. You're so badass. <laughs> I signed it. Wow. <laughs> Erica Fant, cocaine dealer. That's right. It was a prophylactic cocaine. It was like... No, it was for, for... It was for nosebleed. <laughs> oh, I was like... I tried it was the, like it was in a condom no they tried the rhino rocket which is like rhino like rhinorrhea like nose yeah and it's called a rhino rocket is the little device that they can use for nosebleeds and it's basically just a tampon yeah and if that doesn't work and they're still bleeding a lot um and afrin doesn't work and the rhino rocket doesn't work then they'll try cocaine potentially it's good times sweet See, we should have taken me to the hospital when my nose was bleeding after my surgery. They Maybe I could have gotten some cocaine. In. They wouldn't have done cocaine. They would have just put packing in. Fine. Can we call That's tampons rhino rockets from now on? Sure. Let's flip that. Let's flip Badger rockets. That. Badger rockets. <laughs> I like it. All right. Okay, sorry. No, you're okay. I know you're on a time limit and I'm goofing around. I'm ready. Well, I'm on a time limit. <laughs> something silly but anyway <laughs> it's important it is important um hey quinn hey Lindsay. how are you doing um i'm getting through it same you know 
Um, and hey, listener, this is Viral. Hello. Uh, I know. This is a public health podcast uh, where a couple of nerds, me, Quinn Lundquist, public health professioner, and... <laughs> Profession- <laughs> professioner. That's the correct word. Sure. It's like an analropist. You're a professional practitioner. You're a practitioner. Okay. You heard it now. TM, TM, TM. (laughs) You heard it here for folks. I'm good. I am uh, Dr. Lindsey Grove, public health professioner as well. Um, (laughs) Where did you get your professioner's license? I got my professioner's license at the University of South Florida. The University of Education. Yeah, the University of College. <laughs> School of Hard Knocks. Oh, boy. Um, I know. And, yeah, this show is where we talk to um, people in the public health profession, and um, and we talk about science and plagues and disease outbreaks and the people who work behind the scenes to keep us all safe and healthy. Um and today we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Erica Fant, a clinical pharmacist. Um, and I need to, I'm contractually obligated to read off these various <laughs> titles and, um, and, and letters. PharmD, BCPS, BCCCP. And I will be asking her what all of those mean. because That's a lot of CCs if you know what I'm saying. Oh, okay. I see. I see. See what you did there. Yeah, you see what I did there. (laughs) Well, for any listeners that are still here, um, (laughs) Doctor Fant also happens to be my wife. Aww. Yeah. What a plot twist. I know, and uh, we have Doctor Fant here to talk about uh, the practice of pharmacy. Um, talk about some things about pharmacy that you might not know and how pharmacists are playing a unique and very important role in the the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, So welcome, Erica. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here with you guys. First time participant, long time. Long time listener. Listener. First time uh, podcast. podcast. Uh, like forever supporter, though. My goodness. True. Yeah. Well, you're you're also a professioner. I am a professioner. She's I'm a, a professioner of pharmacy. Yep. Well, actually, I, I don't think we've ever talked about all of your letters, Lindsay. Oh, the DRPH, CPH, Chez. 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 And that one, we Is we've... that how you have to say it? Yeah, we've universally acknowledged that it's pronounced as as a word instead of C-H-E-S. Yes. Um, And I'm sure that um, NCHEC, which is the organization that accredits us, is probably just like, we're going to take that back. (laughs) We're taking that back from you right now. I still think the best public health acronym I've come across in knowing you guys is NACHO. Yep. Yeah. They they prefer to be called Nacho. But they should just lean right into that. Behind, yeah, they should just lean right in because Ooh, behind the scenes nachos. everyone's like, it's Nacho. The National Association of City and County Health Officials. Yep. Nacho. Good job. Nacho. So um we're gonna talk about pharmacy today, our 
and we have our, our handy dandy resident um, legal drug dealer, Erica, here to talk about pharmacy. Uh, so first of all, what made you interested in pharmacy? I mean, there's the sappy since I was a kid stories, but to be honest, by the time I was graduating high school and started college, I knew I wanted to do something medical, but I don't super like touching people. So pharmacy was a great way for me to sort of be right in that sweet spot in the middle of being a doctor and being totally hands-off. Um, because hands-off, I get bored. I don't really like touching people. So let's find something right down the middle that feels practical and useful. And that's how I ended up in pharmacy. So I have a question. You said that you have wanted to be a pharmacist since you were a little girl? Oh, no. Oh, I was like, wow. Oh, gosh, that, I no. When I was that. No, when I was little, I wanted to work at Mission Control for NASA. Hell and yeah. Then I realized Again, that, kind of a like hands-off, behind-the-scenes, not... I mean, a very important role, obviously. But yeah, my dreams in... have always been like that, just sort of aiming for behind the scenes, strangely. That's always been my jam. Yeah, do something cool, but not necessarily be the one on TV. Yeah, yeah, you know? but like pharmacists are like mission control for drugs. And that's cool. It's wow. super cool. And I mean, that relates a lot to public health because yeah. we're the ones behind the scenes and mm -hmm. um, working with data, working with numbers, trying to come up with prevention strategies so people don't even need us to, to show up. I mean, they do still need us, but um, they would rather not hear the word epidemiology on the news all, all the time. I know uh, right now that is the case. Yeah. Like, I, I know we've we've talked a little bit about this, but like people have asked us, um, oh, isn't this time really exciting for you? And it's like, well, I mean, I guess, but do you ever ask a firefighter like if they're really loving working on this enormous forest fire, like you must, you must love this, right? And it's like, no, this is a tragedy. I guess it's this sort of terrible. analogous to, wow, there's this whole opioid crisis. That must be so <laughs> yeah, interesting right? for you pharmacists, oh, right? Lord. Are they asking like, well, like medical coroners the same question? Like, wow, your job must love be dead bodies. So you get to see them cool all the right time. Now. Yes. Oof. Oh yeah. Mm. yeah. So um, back to pharmacy, what are some differences between a retail pharmacist and a hospital pharmacist? Because I think a lot of people listening may not even realize that pharmacists can work in the hospital and be, uh, be working in inpatient settings alongside doc doctors and nurses. So that was actually something that I learned more about in school. I didn't really even know when I started, honestly. Um, but so all pharmacists um, practicing now um, are all registered with the state that they work in. So we all do take at least two licensing exams per state. So one for law and one for um, like clinical knowledge. Um, and most of us graduating for the last like 15 or plus years will have what we call a PharmD, which is a doctorate in pharmacy. So all of us are technically doctors, but we don't usually go by that, but thank you. Um, so we do all have the same degree, but what is different is um, for retail pharmacists, they're who you would recognize working at CVS, Rite Aid, Target, Walmart, wherever. Um, and then w there's other 
places we can work as well. So there's in the hospital, um, which is what I do called inpatient or clinical pharmacy is what we call it technically. Um, although I think all of our jobs are really clinical, but there's also folks that can work in industry and in research. And I don't know a ton about those, so I can't really speak to that. But one difference that we have as inpatient pharmacists or inpatient clinical pharmacists, as they say, is that we have more immediate face-to-face -face interactions with different disciplines. So we work with physicians, we work with nurses, we work with dietitians, surgeons, I mean, anyone. Um, so we also go on um, often daily rounding. So like you would think about, um, you know, in like the TV show Scrubs when they go on rounds every morning, we do things like that. Um, we also have more freedom than your retail pharmacist does to make changes. Um, we can have different protocols with physicians, which are basically contracts with either through the health system, if you're in a hospital or if you're in a clinic setting, it's sort of a contract with an individual physician that lets you manage or adjust therapy, um, sort of that they'll sign off on trusting you to do your like, job. For instance, if a doctor prescribes a medicine and a dose and they send it, for instance, to your retail pharmacist and they pull it up and look at it and go like, oh, this this dose is this dose doesn't make sense, or it's what they would call contraindicated. It's another, you know, wow. industry term. Yeah, you know, I've wow. pulled up a couple, up a couple things. A couple well, sure. So but uh, and they they might have to call the doctor and say, Hey, we need to come to an agreement on what what you meant versus what is actually like agrees with the science that I, that's out there for this type of thing or this type of person but a hospital pharmacist might be able to kind of like make some of those changes directly sometimes i mean there we still certainly do interact closely with physicians on on different things but there we have protocols for instance to dose and manage certain antibiotics that can be a little tricky to manage um, that take a little more time day to day. We'll take care of those and the physicians don't need to worry about it. They just tell me when they want it started, when they want it stopped, and we go from there. Um, different things like that. Um, we also, in the hospital, um, at least at my hospital, we respond to inpatient emergencies. So um, what we call rapid responses or codes, which is basically um, a cardiac or a respiratory arrest event. So that's the whole ACLS CPR algorithm. We help with that. And um, we can assist with certain procedures too, um, such as drawing up medications for if a patient needs to be intubated, so put on a ventilator. Um, and we'll make on the spot recommendations in all those settings as well. So we do all kinds of things and retail is certainly very busy and taxing, but it's just, they're very different roles. Yeah. So I was just gonna say, speaking of uh, medication stewardship, what role does the pharmacist play in health education and medication stewardship? And what does that even mean? So there's different kinds of stewardship. Um, the most common and the easiest example to wrap your head around is probably antimicrobial or antibiotic stewardship. So that's stewardship basically in the setting of the healthcare field really just means appropriate use and sort of helping police that appropriate use. So what at um, our hospital and at many hospitals, they do daily what we call antimicrobial stewardship rounds and basically daily stewardship processes that we do even outside that one hour we have with an infectious disease physician a day that we have one-on-one -on -one with our pharmacist to talk with him about different cases to assess if an antibiotic drug is appropriate, if the, um, 
dose is appropriate, if the treatment duration is appropriate, or if there's something that we could, what we call de-escalate to. So basically step down the therapy to something that's less of maybe a big gun, broad spectrum antibiotic to something that's a little smaller and, and easier. So that would be taking something that maybe would treat um, a scary bug like MRSA. And if the patient doesn't have MRSA, we can get that discontinued, put them on something that will just treat the infection they have and not try to just scorched earth, kill everything. Because there could be, uh, you could be killing positive, like good bacteria in the body Ex and, and exactly. doing Exactly. And that's always a risk with antibiotics of any strength, but especially when you're using those big gun antibiotics, um, you increase your risk, of course, of antimicrobial resistance, which is a huge problem, it was probably one of our number one problems. Yeah, creating um, in the super health, bugs. Yeah, in the health fields, um, as far as, you know, outside, of course, access, there's tons and tons of problems. I shouldn't say that, but um, antimicrobial resistance is a huge emerging issue. Um, yeah. So we do daily rounds to try to help with, with that. We also assess different therapies as well. We'll assess blood pressure therapy, um, diabetes or blood sugar management in the, in the hospital as well. We do that every day. Um, so there's all kinds of different medication stewardship roles. And it again, um, jumping back to the opioid crisis, there's a role for pharmacists in that crisis. But you know, that's a very multi-level issue. And I have some feelings about that that are maybe different yeah. than the uh, current plans right now. Well, okay. well like, can you give us an example? Of, like, uh, sound like, I want to hear this controversy. Sure. So, well, I mean, most of you, so we live in Florida. Most of you guys probably know that from listening to the show. And we've had a huge opioid um crisis problem here as well as many other states and you find that a lot of the uh, news and a lot of the regulations have been aimed at retail pharmacists which for good reason we are a gateway to these medications and there certainly are bad actors but at the same time we have much less control over what prescriptions come into our store one other thing about the opioid prescription um issues is there's also a big safety concern for pharmacists in turning down a prescription mm -hmm. for I'm sure you guys have I mean there's been news stories every few months about a store being robbed and with you know an armed robbery and there are pharmacists who have died and there are pharmacists who have shot back apparently and oh yeah, you don't, you don't hear about pharmacy being like a dangerous job like that but, but you're very it, exposed it, it, yeah. um you know in these retail stores so it's just um it's it's challenging, I would yeah. say, for sure. And I'm very fortunate to not be in the middle of that because obviously in the hospital, that's not so much a problem. Um, and we more are in the, the world of managing overdoses and managing acute pain, and we're not that front-facing um, customer, open access sort of role that retail is. So is it is it painting with too broad a brush to say that a hospital clinical pharmacist um, deals more with acute medical issues and a retail pharmacist deals more with chronic medical issues. Uh, and, and did that factor into your decision into going uh, into one direction versus the other? It did. Um, I would say that, yeah, we do mostly manage acute issues. Again, most folks are not in the hospital for a very long time, an extended period, hopefully. And um, 
retail would certainly see more of that chronic disease management. It depends on your setting. There are also pharmacists that work in outpatient clinics. We call that ambulatory care, meaning the patient walks in, walks out. Um, oh, they ambulate. That's it. Whoa. <laughs> wow. They ambulate in and they ambulate out. So there are certain settings where pharmacists may have a... Lindsay's <laughs> shaking her head right now in amazement at they... my ability to understand concepts. Great so job. So proud of you and your concepts, baby. <laughs> Great job. Um, but where the pharmacist may have a contract or protocol with a physician or a physician group to help manage a patient's um, blood thinner or their diabetes or their blood pressure or their cholesterol or all of the above. Um, so it just kind of depends on on your setting when you would see more chronic versus acute disease management. Um, but certainly retail is more likely to see, well, they see everything. Um, hospital is primarily acute care and ambulatory care is gonna pretty much just be chronic disease management. Um, with respect to the, the COVID pandemic, how has your workday changed and what kinds of things have you had to adjust to? So in our hospital, we routinely are um, out on the floors all day if we're, um, you know, depending on where we're staffing, but if we're out in our clinical role. Stamps. <laughs> yeah. Our dog is scratching at the door right now because yeah. she, both Hold of her, her parents are in here and she's like, why am I not allowed in there? Yeah. Please let me in. She's a little oh, boy. Little She's a monster. tiny gremlin. But um, so normally we'd be out on the floor all day for our eight hour shift. So we'd go to rounds. We'd be available for nurses with questions if needed. We'd speak with patients about a question or concern. And um, but currently with COVID, um, due to the trying to restrict our use of PPE, so we're not overdoing it and using more than we necessarily need to. We've been primarily pulled from the floors and working from our central main department. Mm -hmm. And let me let you come back in. I thought it was up. She probably knocked it down with like her tiny stamps. Um, force energy. Power. Yeah. Oh yeah. That she used the force. That's, that is some. She is. That is some darkness that she's probably. <laughs> Now she's turned to the dark side. Sending. <laughs> she kept her away. Um, so do, uh, let me start again. So now with COVID in an effort to preserve PPE, we've been pulled from the floors down to our main department and working from different office spaces down there. So most of our contact with patients or really nurses and physicians has to be over the phone, which is not ideal. It's a lot easier to have some of these conversations in person, just like it is in any job. Um, but we do still respond to those emergencies that I mentioned before. So what we call rapid responses, which is when a patient looks like they're heading the wrong direction, we wanna to try to reverse that and um, those code emergencies. Do you have to wear a mask every day? I do. So our hospital does do temperature checks um, with a little temporal or forehead thermometer. And when we come in and they, we wear a surgical mask every day in every part of the hospital. And we do have a limited supply of those N95 particulate respirator masks. And um, we do, we are encouraged strongly to wear those when we walk on a unit where COVID patients are, so a floor where those patients are, um, or if we are going in any patient room now. 
Right. So we do have those. And right now, because we use them fairly infrequently, I spray mine down with alcohol between uses. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, how, do you get one surgical mask per day or? We get one surgical mask per day. And my N95 I got in the middle of April. And um, I wear it, depending on what shift I'm working, one to two times a day for an hour or two. So nothing as long as nurses and physicians have been wearing theirs because I take mine off when I get back to our department and just clean it in between and let it air dry. Yeah. So are you also being um, preemptive and taking hydrochloroquine um, <laughs> to ensure you don't get COVID-19? Yeah, so like when someone such as the president <laughs> name drops a specific medicine, um, you know, just hypothetically speaking, and that becomes like a top news item. And then all of a sudden people start prescribing it and taking it or doing whatever with it. How does that affect um, the the supply and the management and the usage of that that medicine um, for people who actually need it. And like, I'm just loving Erica's face right now. Oh, I know. <laughs> and like, specifically for this one, like, what what types of um, what types of situations is it designed to manage uh, that that maybe actually now is is harder? So no, I'm not taking hydroxychloroquine prophylactically um, for a lot of I just of want reasons. to point out that I did not mean that seriously. I know. Okay. <laughs> I just wanted to be clear. <laughs> I am not taking hydroxychloroquine prophylactically or chloroquine. She has her fingers crossed. I do not. <laughs> I am... She's up Queen David. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! The middle name, name came out. So, I'm gonna edit that out. No, I, no. no, I'm not. I'm not taking hydroxychloroquine. But I will say that when we see these emerging health stories, and it's not just a, been an issue with hydroxychloroquine um, or chloroquine, which is not on formulary at our hospital, but with any of these drugs that have come out and been in the news as potentially helping, we'll see basically our warehouses that our hospital sources from wiped through just clean within hours of the news story breaking. So That's wild. So, and it's these really, aren't just like everyday people going to these warehouses or ordering from these warehouses. These are not. hospital systems and, and like retail retail that are what buying up supplies or like, so basically stocking up to be ready because we know that, once this supply is, is depleted, there's limited supply coming um, because there's only a certain amount made. So there's usually a, you know, a general stockpile available in warehouses around the country um, that's restocked appropriately. But when those warehouses are suddenly emptied, now you have no reserve. Are you saying that there's not an endless supply of any drugs? Well, <laughs> some of you may have heard the news after Hurricane Maria destroyed so much of Puerto Rico. There's a lot of drug manufacturing facilities in Puerto Rico for a lot of different reasons. Um, but because so many of those were destroyed, we had a lot of shortages after that storm as well, including on basic things that um, you wouldn't think would be a problem, like IV fluids, normal saline, sodium bicarbonate, which is 
sterile baking soda, yeah. um, which we use in a lot of our critically ill patients at pretty high volumes. Um, does that like help manage, not pH? Or it like, does. It, it does? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it helps would correct wanna... acidosis. Oh, okay. So if you have a patient that is in metabolic or respiratory acidosis, you can, well, you certainly want to treat the underlying reason, but bicarbonate can help help you get back to where you need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Those are like basic things. Yes. And like saline solution. Is, right. You know. So when there's these supply chain interruptions, you realize how fragile it is. So anytime there's a run on these supplies, we frequently see that once these storages are depleted, then everyone realizes that they can't get any more and everyone puts orders in. So these small amounts that come trickling out of the manufacturers that they've been continually making for hopefully continually making if there's not another problem those are gone too. So you want to go ahead and if you have the opportunity, we're basically encouraged to not hoard, but buy what we can that we think we might need because we may not be able to get it for quite a while. Oh my God. It's just like toilet paper. Exactly. Like toilet paper. Oh my God. Yeah. It's the same. I mean, honestly, it's supply demand issues when you have these runs and not not like that. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna say it. Yeah, I don't think the, um, the toilet paper issue was a uh, poop supply increase. Yes. <laughs> People were just just so much poop. I'm so sorry, um, but when you do have these, we talk um, about poop on this show. That's oh, fair. These, you know, intense buying sprees, and again, in in a situation like COVID nineteen, we we haven't known what therapies are going to end up being effective. So we hear that there's promising data for hydroxychloroquine. Wasn't there another remdesivir? Remdesivir is an investigational drug. It um, isn't, as far as I know, approved in the United States for use yet, but there is a compassionate use in a study um, ongoing for its use with COVID-19. I think it was, I can't remember exactly when they developed it. It might've even been for SARS or MERS. And it had some f- efficacy against Ebola as well, if I I could be wrong. So apologies. I'm not an expert on remdesivir because our hospital is not able to get it. So it's not something that I've spent a lot of time looking into at this time. Yeah. Um, but azithromycin was in, recommended in combination with hydroxychloroquine. Um, what but, other drug, like, so what other um, conditions would something like um, hydroxychloroquine be used for? So, because if there's a supply and demand. A drug, but is there anything else? Yeah, because so, I've heard it's been used for like lupus or. It is. So hydroxychloroquine, it is an anti-malarial drug. That's its kind of first use. They found it did have some efficacy for patients with lupus, and they also will occasionally use it in patients with sickle cell. It, it helps with some. Um, immune factor. I'm like, hold on. I got to look it up to figure out how to explain it because I'm having a blank out moment. That's okay. Are there um, like equal, I don't know, equal drugs that could be substituted for it? Or does it kind of have a unique role? It has a fairly unique role. We don't have a um, quick and easy substitute for hydroxychloroquine for these other patients. And we don't have a lot of options for malaria that are as historically affordable as hydroxychloroquine has been. So you're looking, if you're a patient perhaps with lupus in the United States at difficulty obtaining your medication at this point, which could be managing your risk for connective tissue problems, for blood clots, um, 
chronic pain issues, different things that come along with lupus that this drug is helping immunomodulate for or kind of regulate your immune system. Immunomodulate. Oh, I like that. It's now. (laughs) Oh, man, we're going to create a band with that name. The immunomodulators. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like Tobias Funke's family fun time band. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Phantom, the immunomodulators. Dr. Phantom, the immunomodulators. Um, That's our new trivia team name. That would be good. Whenever... We get to do bar trivia again. Someday. Oh, man. When it's safe. Yep. Um, so So hydroxychloroquine can be used for rheumatoid arthritis as well. I wanted to add that in there. Um, so a lot of these basically hyperactive immune disorders it has been found to help with, which is why we thought it could have a role in COVID-19. Um, so the not the main issue, but one large issue that we've seen, especially in younger patients who've contracted COVID, is what, hypothetically, this is what we're thinking now, and this could change at any time. It is probably already slightly out of date, but there's concern for what they call a cytokine storm. Another one of my favorite terms, even though it is terrifying. It is definitely terrifying. So we tend to see it... um, Anywhere from like five to seven days after the onset of symptoms, it, it appears to be so far. And this is all just from what I've read in these, you know, we're still early in understanding this disease state. Um, but it's where your immune system basically goes into a hyperactive mode. Um, so cytokines are immune. Um, oh, my gosh, what's the word? Recruiting, immune recruiting molecules. Ooh. And they help increase your immune response to a specific place in your body to they wherever turn that into infection is. Berserkers and go wild on oh. kind yourself. of. And then what happens in that case is you get all of these inflammatory um, response proteins and and cells that come to that area and there's some collateral damage involved Oops. when they're doing their campaign. Yeah. And um, and also just the large amount of fluid that comes with all of these proteins and and white cells and T cells and all kinds of things that it can cause damage to. Like if you're swinging, you're trying to kill a mosquito in your house. So you grab a sledgehammer and you just start trying to hit that. You're like, Oh, it's over there. I mean, kind of. And unfortunately where it seems to be hitting for, for COVID-19 is, is the lungs and sledgehammering your lungs is not ideal. Um, Right. Not recommended. I mean, in our very limited anecdotal experience that I have seen, we have had some patients appear to be recovering some of their lung function after this, and I'm hopeful that that will be the case. But again, I've had very limited experience. I'm not a physician. I'm not a pulmonologist. Sure. Um, and there's a lot about this that we still don't know. Um, there's also issues with um, once your body is in a pro-inflammatory state, you're more likely to have blood clots, which I know has been in the news a lot lately, is is concerns for strokes and um, systemic blood clots or venous thromboembolisms, VTE, which just basically means a blood clot somewhere else in your body. And um, those can often travel to your lungs and cause even further problems or to your brain and cause a stroke. So real bad. decreasing real bad. Yeah, inflammatory response is is thought to be very helpful. And that's one role that hydroxychloroquine was thought to play. Azithromycin, another drug you may have heard, um, is an antibiotic. The ZPAC. The ZPAC drug. um, Does have some, is thought to have some inflammatory modulating effects as well. Um, Other drugs that we are 
trying or have tried include the Branamectemra. It's an antibody drug, so I believe it's tolucizumab. Oof. Wow. And uh, that I, one. Can I just, just like, throw in an, an aside? When Erica was in pharmacy school and, and I was in the MPH program, because um, we've been together for uh, since 15, the beginning of time. Yeah, for 15 years now, since high school. And oh. uh, But when we were in college and Erica was studying um, pharmacology and had to learn all of these, these drug names, uh, she would make flashcards. And so there would be a stack of like 100 flashcards. And the thing about doing flashcards with another person is the other person has to be capable of reading the words <laughs> off the flashcards. <laughs> So oh, I would boy. sometimes like as flagarmenadine, and I'm just like here, and you're like, well, no, you, ha- you this isn't gonna work if you can't read the <laughs> the crazy words. I'm like, this sounds like I'm having a stroke. Is this a drug for stroke? <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. I got better at it. You have. I have gotten a lot better. better. You've got like maybe one eighth of a pharmacy degree now. But man, some of these words, they're like a hundred letters long. And, and but, <laughs> but like by looking at the drug name, you can learn a lot about it because certain mm-hmm. classes of drugs have certain endings or certain beginnings or middles or whatever. And, and based on what categories they're in, you can kind of figure out based on just so you don't have to memorize these insane words. I mean, you st- you you still have to know all the words. You still have to know the words, <laughs> but you could kind of be like, "Oh, this one is a cancer drug or something." Sometimes, yeah. And one pro tip is if you see a drug name and you're having a hard time pronouncing it, the emphasis almost always goes on the second syllable, which oh. can help you pronounce mm. it, and sound it out. So it's um, not azithromycin. It's azithromycin. Azithromycin. Makes it easier to, to interpret these, but um, <laughs> basically. But we're used to hearing all kinds of pronunciations of drugs, so don't worry. You don't sound dumb to us. We know it's a whole new language. Yeah, and sometimes I mix up the generic with the. It's just it's a whole thing. Um, but I am amazed and so thankful for what you do. Um, Same. I know it is, it is an amazing world and I think we don't thank our pharmacists enough. Great. So okay. thank you. And so yeah. Um, before, before we wrap up, is there anything you are reading or watching or doing lately that is bringing you joy in this, uh, in this time? Well, I mean, I'm still working, so, I mean, I guess it's nice to get out of the house, but Joy has been hanging out with uh, our little little nugget. We have a little baby, and yeah. she's cool. She's cool. Um, she enjoys swinging and playing on her splash pad. Wait, if you're not watching her, I'm trying not. Trying to pull herself <gasps> up. And I'm not even there. The dogs are watching her. It's <laughs> oh, that's fun. right. The dogs are watching her. Just kidding. My mother-in-law's here. Mom's um, here. She's, she's fine. She's asleep right now. Um, the baby, not your mom. Maybe both. I don't know. And they're both okay. Um, they're snoozing. Um, I'm well, reading. Go ahead. Oh, oh no. Um, I've been really bad about reading lately, but when I have been, I've been reading a relatively new translation of the Odyssey. Nice. And 
I'll have to drop the name in your comments, perhaps, of the author, because it's very good. It's um, written, it's translated by a female, um, oh my God, classics. Author? Pause. Translator? Oh, writer? Right. I broke. Yes. Yeah. So a new, um, a different version of the Odyssey, a new translation, and it has um, a whole new perspective on More of a feminist story. perspective. But or still true to the original. The way it's told. Yeah. Nice. Oh, as we know it. So that's good. And then as far as watching, we've been watching a lot of uh, Schitt's Creek. Yeah. Which we're on yes. three. So we have a long way to go. No, we're in season four now. We're only in season it. four, so we have a long way to go still, <laughs> oh. thankfully, because I'm enjoying it so much. And, and we're then, taking it slow, because we know it just ended. And we've been enjoying um, a show called The Repair Shop on Netflix, which is maybe yeah. the most the soothing, sh soothing show I've ever seen. It's so relaxing. So. And then and then when we want some laughs, we watch Nailed It. Ah, oh. Nicole Byer is a treat. She's our hero. Nice. Yeah. Um, I love all of those things too. I I love Shit's Creek a lot. Um, I've not watched Nailed It though. Oh, you, you would love. love oh my gosh. It's a good natured like reality competition show. They are very nice, even though the whole purpose of the show is to like, you know, show how people who are not professional bakers make the most hilariously wild, um, elaborate. elaborate. <clears throat> It's basically Inserts. Pinterest fails, but as a show. I love it. And you think, based on the concept, it would just be like, hey, look, <laughs> look at these idiots. But because it's so like good-natured and everyone knows that they're basically setting them up to fail mm -hmm. based on the, the time limits and the, the things that they have to create, but um, they, in their judging sessions, they always say something that they liked about what they did, whether it's like, you know, the funny, weird smile on this animal that doesn't even look like anywhere near the animal it should, or um, this, you know, the way that this cupcake tasted <laughs> was could or be that surprising. It is too wild. You're too gritty or like strange, and um, or people who put in way too much flavoring. It's very good. But I think uh, you would enjoy it. You do learn a few things um, mm -hmm. based on on what they do and how they screw up. Usually, it's just like if they were to follow the recipe, they would do just fine. <laughs> They may <laughs> not have the best decorated cake, but it wouldn't taste horrible. Mm -hmm. Somehow they yeah. make, they like even give them pre-mixed, like batter. Oh, wow. It's like ready to go, and it's they still outstanding. Oof. I will it's say that it gets better. Each season gets better. So if you're watching the first it gets season, wilder. and you're like, oh, I don't know, like they, you know, they figure out ways to make better use of the the in between. Um, times they add little bits here and there as you go along um, and they, it it just like it's funny it's, it's sweet great. it's goofy and I don't think I've laughed as hard as I have until that sloth cake episode oh that sloth cake I, uh, that's in season four but oh it's so good and the way that they the use joy. the um, the crew like, mm -hmm. you know, when you see a cameraman yes. walk by or like a, a staff assistant or something, they like incorporate them into the show in funny ways. Mm -hmm. uh, I just this highly... just became a whole entire review of Nailed It. I oh, could go on. We could go I, on. I, can, I, I know. Even our baby, Amelia, will, when we turn on Nailed It, she will like turn and look at the TV. Because when Nicole speaks. Wow. She likes it. Oh, that's really cute. 
Well, I, um, what about you, Lindsay? I have, um, I have been watching Barry, which is on HBO uh, with Bill Hader. It's, it's very good. Um, James and I are continuing to watch uh, What We Do in the Shadows, the TV oh, series. Oh, yeah. Have you guys watched the newest episode? We've, no, but we oh. watched the first three episodes of season two, and it's it's so good. I, lo- I love Guillermo's yeah. arc. I know. It's very, it's so good. And I was you so happy to see Haley Joel Osmond in the first couple oh, episodes. The most recent one? Topher. Shocked at who's in it. Okay. You're going to lose your damn mind. All right. Okay. Because okay. I screamed. Oh, God. Like, what is happening? Maybe we'll have to watch that later. Um, so, yeah, that's what I've been doing. I have not been reading as much as I would like, um, but I have been drawing more still. Still drawing. Got some new oh, markers. Wonderful. So, I'm really excited about the markers. And I sent some postcards out to people because I was like, why that's not? Fun. Hashtag such a nice idea. Yeah. I have like a bunch of postcards that like I collect when I go places, but then I like never just put them in a drawer. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, I should just send these out. So yeah. So nice. Yeah. So anyway. So our next segment is an interview with um, a pharmacist who has also developed a, a career in public health. Yes, and uh, we Dr. talk about epidemiology, and then a little bit about public health at the, or a little bit about pharmacy at the end. Yes, Dr. Zagibber. She is a professor at the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, and she's also the associate dean for academic affairs. So, so. we had a really good talk with her. Mm-hmm. If you want to stick around, you'll get to hear um, the difference between a case fatality rate and a regular old fatality rate so that you can clap back at all of your uh, people on Facebook who don't know what they're talking about. Wow. I enjoy your use of the term clap back. Mm-hmm. In that. And I, I did a, a quiet Z snap. I love that. Awesome. All right. Well, we would like to welcome Dr. Janice Zagibber uh, to the podcast. She is a pharmacist and an epidemiologist. She is an associate professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of South Florida in the College of Public Health. while her position has recently transitioned, Dr. Zagibber remains actively involved with uh, projects at the University of Pittsburgh as well. Um, she's a co-investigator on a study called Move Up, which is a translation of the Look Ahead study. Uh, and she has done a lot of stuff. I wish I could read your entire personal statement on your biosketch. It is extremely long because you've done a lot of really awesome stuff. So welcome to the show, Dr. Zagibber. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Awesome. So um, we really wanted to focus this episode on really just giving some basics of epidemiology. And so uh, we would I would love to hear what is epidemiologist from an epidemiologist? Or so what is epidemiology, I should say? <laughs> what is epidemiologist? <laughs> what is epidemiologist? Uh, yes, so <laughs> okay. So um, an epidemiologist, studies patterns of diseases and risk factors in large populations. So um, healthcare providers tend to look at very patient-specific things, 
whereas epidemiologists look at trends and distributions of these diseases and risk factors in large populations rather than one person at a time. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that I learned in um, my public health program was that uh, you think about the difference between medicine and public health, like um, in medicine, you think about what kind of disease has the person, and in public health, you think about what kind of person has the disease, and it's kind of flipping that that viewpoint and looking at from a uh, people-centric perspective, what kind of characteristics like socioeconomic status, um, gender, age, uh, income level, educational level, do these things have an impact on disease rates and on someone's likelihood of um, having certain outcomes? And predictably, we find that there is, uh, there are, there are those strong correlations. And so um, epidemiology kind of looks at disease over the course of entire populations. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about like what um, epidemiologists are doing in terms of this COVID-19 outbreak, because we have people who are obviously sitting behind desks and looking at data, but um, there are also groups of people doing things like contact tracing and you know what does that even mean um, what are epidemiologists in the field actually doing yeah you're right so epidemiologists have a lot of roles in in this covid-19 outbreak and so you mentioned contact tracing and so contact tracing involves the identification of a positive case so a person goes for the test and it's determined that they're positive so at that point they want to know who has this person come in contact with over um, a, a specific period of time? And so the epidemiologist comes in to kind of um, do the detective work on that. So they'll ask the person, where have you been in the last, say, two weeks? Who have you come in contact with? What is their information? So that, they, that these individuals that they may have come in contact with can then be alerted to the fact that they were exposed to someone who was positive for COVID-19 and they can then take, take the appropriate um, action in self-isolation and, um, you know, protecting themselves and others from the virus. Awesome. So that's, I love that you said disease detectives, because that's actually another way that I describe epidemiologists to my undergrad students. Because um, mm -hmm. you are kind of like this, I don't know, it seems like a really cool, like, I'm a PI for disease. Yeah. I, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's really true. Because whether we're talking about an infectious disease like COVID-19 or a chronic disease like diabetes, we're always searching for clues. We're always searching for clues to the causation, clues in who is best, um, who will benefit from treatments. Um, you know, how can we prevent the disease from getting worse? So we're always searching and looking for clues in disease prevention and disease progression, whether it be chronic or infectious disease. So what are some other settings that you might find an epidemiologist in besides like, you know, your tried and true, you know, public health department? Yeah, so often epidemiologists are, are um, they come to the forefront when there's an outbreak of some sort. In this case, it's COVID-19. 
Um, in other cases, it might be a foodborne outbreak. Um, so when you hear about romaine lettuce, you know, there people are getting sick from romaine lettuce or something else. Um, epidemiologists are very active in those types of outbreaks as well. And tracking That's why down I try to avoid salads. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it always seems to be the romaine lettuce or the baby spinach. Yeah, but, um, just, I just I just cut salads out of my diet and I'm good. <laughs> yep, yep. And and so the, the epidemiologists are really important in that aspect. But someone like me, I'm a chronic disease epidemiologist and a social epidemiologist. So what I do is look at the social determinants of health and how they impact the prevention and treatment of chronic conditions. In my case, in particular, I'm a diabetes epidemiologist. So I look at diabetes prevention, um, best modalities for treatment, uh, impacts of the social environment or other social determinants of health on access and outcomes in people with diabetes. So we can, you can have um, a cancer epidemiologist, a cardiovascular epidemiologist. We all tend to, to, you know, kind of specify the area that we go into, but uh, they can be found in all kinds of health conditions. And um, some of the epidemiologists look at trends in disease over time and what are the patterns that we're looking at. For example, if you're looking at obesity, what are the obesity trends over a number of years and what has happened in the environment to increase the prevalence of obesity? And so you'll find epidemiologists in all of those areas. It's going to be really interesting to see um, the different ways that chronic disease epidemiologists and infectious disease epidemiologists work together during this pandemic. Because as we're, what one of the things that we're seeing is that people with um, multiple chronic conditions tend to be at a greater risk of having adverse outcomes from from. Um, contacting this coronavirus. And and so I was wondering, like, what are some of the ways that chronic disease epidemiologists have worked with um, infectious disease epidemiologists and vice versa to uh, try and share information and share work and, um, and work together? So um, in, in the specific case of an infectious disease, as you mentioned, people who have chronic conditions like diabetes, cancer, or immune compromised in, in other ways are more likely to get not only COVID-19, but other infectious diseases like the flu. Um, so they're at higher risk for um, those chronic conditions. And so it's really important that all of us understand what's happening with infectious disease so that those with chronic conditions can be most protected um, because they're they're more likely to have poor outcomes as well if they do contract the infectious disease. On the flip side of that, infections and infl inflammation that often result from infectious disease can also, down the road, lead to a higher prevalence of chronic conditions. And so 20 years from now, we don't know what the effect of COVID-19 might be on um, uh, chronic lung disease yeah. or um, how it affected the epithelium, making people at higher risk for cardiovascular disease. We just don't know yet. I hadn't but, even thought of that. So, yeah. And so we saw the same thing with the, um, with HIV AIDS 
And mm. at first it was an infectious disease. Well, now it's a chronic disease and we yeah. find higher prevalence of um, cardiovascular issues and things like that. So, you know, it, it works in both directions. That's a, that's such a good point. Um, when I used to work as an HIV case manager, it was really interesting because when I came into doing case management, I, you know, I was very much in the mindset that it was, okay, this is an infectious communicable disease, you know, but seeing the clients that I worked with, it, it really has, you know, um, shifted to, you know, how do we treat chronic disease, especially, you know, with, um, you know, long-term exposure to the cocktail of medicine that people take for HIV, because there's also, you know, long-term side effects for that. Um, Mm -hmm. So, it's, it's really interesting. And, and now, you know, we're seeing um, there are, you know, um, children are being uh, impacted by COVID-19. There's now, you know, this, um, they're having some, um, you know, weird medical conditions that I think it, very similar to Kawasaki disease um, mm-hmm. after they've had COVID. So even if, I mean, obviously this is pretty, you know, short-term after being infected with COVID-19, but you're right. We, we really won't know what the long-term effects are, you know, decades down the road. So that's, yeah, and that's I really think, interesting. Um, one of the, I think one of the things that um, I hear most often is, well, the, how do we know what to believe because the information keeps changing? And that is epidemiology. That's how science we're constantly works. Searching. Yeah. And, and we're, we're constantly searching for new information, new evidence. And so, yes, there have been a lot of changes in information, but it's because we're constantly learning. We're constantly learning not only about the virus at the, at the molecular level, but also about the populations who are being infected. If you recall, at first, we were only the biggest concern was about those with chronic conditions and the elderly, but we've come to learn that um, there are bad outcomes in younger people as well. Um, you know, the, we've heard about the, the emboli that can form and, you know, something to do with the clotting cascade. And now we've got this Kawasaki-like syndrome in children. And so we've seen this progression over time of, you know, all of, everyone in the population is at risk, maybe for different reasons and at different levels, but we're seeing outcomes that were unexpected, uh, say, in January. So uh, epidemiology is, is all about the, being open to learning and always being open to exploring. Basically, we're never done. Yeah. It's not like there's some sort of top secret lab somewhere where we've cataloged every disease and we're just like, oh, yeah, we already know everything about coronavirus. (laughs) Right, right. And it's true with chronic conditions, too, because, you know, as much as we think we know about, say, cardiovascular disease or diabetes, um, humans change, behavior changes, the environment changes, and so we're always learning and evolving about um, the best ways to, to prevent things or treat things um, because of that, that constant learning and, and hopefully making things better over time. Very true. And so, the messaging. Oh, go, go oh, ahead. I was just going to say, um, I love that we've like really, you know, dove into some, um, I would say some of the complexities of epidemiology, but what are, what are some, I guess, um, you know, we talk a lot about infection versus case fatality rates. Like what are some common terms that you'd like to, 
you know, dispel or not dispel, I would say common terms. Dispelling like common to, terms. Yeah, dispelling common terms. <laughs> no, I would say <laughs> what are myth. some common terms you'd like to demystify for our audience? So the two things that I think need clarification are mortality rate versus case fatality rate. Um, so I see a lot of that, those terms misused, particularly in the armchair epidemiologist. Yes. Um, that, <laughs> Seems to be a know, lot of they those. They get a little lately. information and, oh my goodness, they're everywhere. Um, but I didn't know the, the public health workforce rate, was so diverse, so, so large. Uh, exactly. Uh, absolutely. And so the mortality rate is the number of people who are dying, let's say, from COVID over the entire population. Um, but what's more important with COVID is we want to know the case fatality rate. And that means of all the people who are diagnosed with COVID, what proportion of those folks die? And that's the case fatality rate. And, and so the mortality rate and case fatality rate are very different numbers, very different denominators, and give you very different information. Um, so while the mortality rate may be low when you look at the entire population, you have to keep in mind, you know, who are we looking at in terms of if we're looking at the whole population or just the people diagnosed or just the people with symptoms. It's a, it's a very nuanced type of conversation, but being very careful about what those numbers mean and how they're communicated. Agreed. I, I've, I have also seen that a lot on, you know, on social media and people talking about like, well, there's a really low mortality rate for, for COVID-19. It's like, well, yeah, I mean, but again, like you just said, there's, there's nuance, right? And we are, you know, if we don't, have mass testing, we also don't really know the, you know, infection rate. We, right. we also really don't understand how long COVID has been in our population. Therefore, there might be some deaths that have occurred that may have been related to COVID that we weren't aware of because we, we didn't know that COVID was here. So, yeah. so there's a lot of, exactly. I think, a lot of nuance. Yeah, because even the case fatality rate can be, um, can be problematic because the denominator are the cases we know about. And exactly. we know there are cases walking around that are asymptomatic. So even that number can be, be off. So um, the, the definitions and the context are very important before you start throwing the numbers around. That is so true. Can't We just cannot be throwing numbers around, you know? All the people love to. <laughs> yes, it's very true. <laughs> Very true. Awesome. Um, you know, I was just going to, I've been, you know, we've seen a lot of modeling and I would love to hear sort of how, um, you know, epidemiologists have been, you know, like their work is being used to be able to create some of the models that we've seen. If you can speak yeah, to that. Um, yeah, definitely. I actually did a lot of training um, in, in prognostic modeling um, years ago. And so, the first thing to remember about models is there are off, there are a lot of underlying assumptions in these models because we may not know all of the data. Um, so you are kind of making your best estimates at the time you build the model, knowing that there um, is some you know error around those those assumptions. And so you have to think about that when you look at the models. And and I think um, 
the people that have presented models have been a really have done a really good job of talking about that. And so you use the best information you have at the time and looking at what's happened in the past, try to predict what's going to happen in the future, given um, a, a set of uh, variables or things that you think are important in, in whatever you're studying. So in the case of COVID-19, when they put different things into the model, the one thing um, that you see, you see this model changing a lot because of the opening up of society. So there was one, there were a number of deaths predicted under certain assumptions, and then they re-ran the model when states started to open up, um, and you, now more deaths are predicted. And so you can, you can um, change the, the assumptions of that model and what that means and to try and predict what's going to happen. Now, one of the things that's missing um, in one of the models that's out there, and it's not missing because they forgot, it's an unknown, is the, the level of immunity in the population. We don't know what it is, first of all. Yeah. And second of all, if someone does have antibodies, how long does that immunity last? We have no idea. So that's a big unknown in if we want to start talking about um, people being immune, say, when it, when it comes to going back to work. They, they could be immune on this test, but how long is that going to last? We just don't know yet. So the models are only as good as the data you put into them, and the best data we have at the time is what is used, but there's always um, some room around that. They're, they're by no means an exact science, but it's the, the best we can do. Yeah, it's like our like our hurricane prediction models when you see the spaghetti mm -hmm. plot in the various directions it could go. Um, and mm -hmm. sometimes it goes on a direction that wasn't plotted, but that's just right. because of some piece of information we didn't have. And right. it's not like we should throw away the idea of modeling because sometimes it's wrong. It's that, okay, we can adjust our models um, better for next time. And, um, mm -hmm. yeah, take it with a grain of salt, but still, like, use the best science that's available. Yeah, they're still very informative. Um, they're, they're, you know, there's a lot, you know, there are different ways to measure precision, but um, the more data you get, um, the, the more precise the model will be. And so over time, we, we're learning more and more and more about, COVID-19 and who's getting it and, and all of those things, which make, which will then make the models um, more precise and give us better information for planning and policy. That's a really good point, um, especially the policy piece, right? I mean, we, especially as, you know, states are reopening and considering different precautions. Um, I, I know we're all here in Florida, so I, I know from my perspective, I'm just watching to see, okay, like, you know, let's see what happens, you know, in these upcoming weeks. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm also hearing too that, you know, a lot of people are like, see, it wasn't as bad as the models predicted. And it's like, I, well, that's because the things that we model. did also might have <laughs> right. helped. Yeah, like exactly. the social distancing, staying at home, the in increased testing, like, all of those things were helping, and that's a good thing. Right, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. I think the, the um, this this past week. So you know, I think the lowest predicted number of deaths was down to like sixty one thousand when all of the social distancing was going on, and and now it's up to at least the last I heard, it was up to about a hundred thousand um, deaths, and that's that's where it was before social distancing policies came into play. And so, you know, this, those predictions are going to go up and down depending on, on what's going on in society. And I think from a policy perspective, um, you know, you have to consider the economic consequences, but then um, what are the health consequences of children going back to school or colleges reopening or, um, you know, what will be the consequence of the salons opening? And, you know, there's just so much unknown right now that I'm, I'm staying home for the most part. <laughs> Same. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, I'm lucky yeah. to be able to. Yeah, my, my partner and I are very lucky that we're able to, to work from home. So that's... Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well... Is there any last parting thoughts that you'd like to um, impart on our audience, Dr. Zigeber? Besides that epidemiology uh, is cool. (laughs) Yeah, I I think um, that people should still be listening to the science. And as we start to um, open up society a little bit more, just doing it cautiously and slowly and carefully, and keeping the social distancing in mind as we move forward and, and try to get back to the new normal, but really just still being very careful. Absolutely. Um, before we go, I wanted to ask you, given your unique background, could you talk a little bit about the role of the pharmacist in public health and the intersection of, of pharmacy and public health and kind of some observations that you've, um, that you've made from, from your perspective? Sure. Um, so when I think about um, when I was practicing pharmacy, I, I did several types. So when I think about public health and pharmacy, I, I automatically go to the retail setting. So the the pharmacies where you pick up your prescriptions and what an opportunity pharmacists have for health education, um, whether it be um, for disease prevention or treatment, you know, they're on the front lines with the public. And, and so I think um, pharmacists in public health can not only look at the, the specific conditions and treatments, but they also get to know the clients and the issues around access and programs that can help the neighborhoods in which they work. And so while you, you know, may be dispensing in a particular pharmacy, the people that come into those pharmacies tend to live locally and tend to um, have the same types of issues, same types of, uh, you know, similar education, similar income, similar access to not only healthcare providers, but maybe even food sources. And so I think the pharmacist is in the ideal situation in the community to understand not only the health conditions and diseases and treatments, but also the social determinants of health that can impact the population of that community. And that just makes the pharmacist a very valuable member of that team in the community. 
One of the things that I've seen uh, kind of become more prominent during this crisis is the the delivery, uh, uh, like delivering uh, medications, getting them through the mail to your door, which obviously mm-hmm. takes out the that person to person interaction, which for the you know in the infectious disease perspective is good, but from mm-hmm. the health um, like you said, health education perspective, you're not getting that one-on-one with the pharmacist. Um, and, and that's going to be really interesting to see what effect that has on people's lives. Because, you know, from convenience, it's like, yeah, this is great. I can just get my, my drugs delivered mm-hmm. to, to my door and I don't have to go out to make a separate trip. But then what mm-hmm. if you have questions or, you know, mm-hmm. something, some issue comes up, um, and you need to speak to the pharmacist, you, you could still call them, I guess, still. Um, so that's, yeah, that's I, a new thing. Yeah, and I think that that's where relationships come in. So um, I was practicing pharmacy starting in the 80s. And back in the 80s, we delivered prescriptions. I mean, and we've delivered prescriptions since, you know, since then and then and even before. And so I think the the pharmacists have all along had a good mechanism to connect with the community, even when prescriptions are being delivered. And so um, when I was practicing, um, you know, the the patients have no problem calling and asking questions. And I think now with technology, people are maybe even more likely to reach out if they have questions. And now also there is a lot of patient information given when the prescription is dispensed, whether it be in person or delivery. And so patients are given the opportunity to look through all of that information and then still follow up if if there are more questions. And so I think um, while the delivery services have been going on for, for decades in pharmacy, we actually have a better opportunity now to inform the public than we ever have before to what, whether that connection is via phone, um, via you know, communication electronically, or even just in writing, um, we were able to reach people in a multitude of ways that that suit their comfort zone with how they communicate. So I think it's it, it's really a, a good time now for, especially for health education in that respect. That's such a good point. I mean, uh, you know. I, as, as a consumer, you know, um, there's so much I don't know about the medication I'm taking and you're right. Like if there's anybody that, you know, you can go to, to ask questions, um, it's, it's your friendly neighborhood pharmacist, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And people tend to go to the same pharmacies over and over and over again. And that's where that rapport um, really becomes important because you see this, the familiar faces, the pharmacist gets to know you and, and what your needs are and you get to know them. And um, that's why I think the pharmacist is such a critical member of the healthcare team and the community. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, um, thank you so much, Dr. Zagibber, for being on the show today and imparting all of the great knowledge and um, experience that you've had 
Um, I mean, it's pretty incredible that you've been a pharmacist, you're an epidemiologist, you're a professor. So we really appreciate you taking the time to educate us and our audience about all of the different um, aspects of epidemiology and the intersection of pharmacy and, and epidemiology. So thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome, Lindsay. It was, it was a pleasure to, to be part of your show, and I hope I was helpful to your, to your audience. Absolutely.